Good morning. The Bible reading is taken from the book, Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good morning. It's good to be together again. Great to have the AFES crew with us and also anyone else who's visiting with us today, joining us for the first time. We're working our way through a a series of Bible teaching this term on the gifts God has given us as his people, so that we can grow as Christians, grow as followers of Jesus. So today, uh, we're looking at the gift of church. It would be very helpful if you had that passage from Ephesians chapter 4 open in your Bible so you can follow along. Would you join me then as we pray? Our Lord and God, the book we open now is nothing less than your word. Because it's your word, we trust you to speak. Please speak directly to our hearts to unite us together in Christ because of what he's done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning our focus is the church. Church, of course, is a gift that God has given his people where our being in Christ is expressed together. Of course, the church is a big theme. It covers a lot more than just what Jean read for us a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 4. So it might help to start with some introductory comments on what the Bible says about the church before we get into Ephesians 4. Uh, what if you ever played a game, of, you know, a casual game of football as a kid and you took sort of jumpers and boots and other things and you know, made the outlines of your rough field? That's kind of what we're going to do this morning before we get into Ephesians chapter 4 itself and what it says about the church. So two outlines today that we're going to um, lay out first before we begin. And I don't have a clicker here, so I'm going to ask Cyril if he can uh, listen carefully so he can change the slides as we go. 
Well, the first thing we need to say as, as a kind of outline for our discussion about church is that God has always been saving a people for himself. God has always been saving a people for himself. Got to keep in mind that when we come to the Bible talking about church, it's not actually a New Testament invention. The Lord has always been concerned with establishing and preserving a community, a people, which belongs to him. So from the first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 128, the command from God to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply, make more of you. And yes, of course, Adam and Eve sinned and the perfect pattern was damaged. But if we fast forward to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham was, I will make of you a great nation, Genesis 12 verse 1. And in Genesis 15, the Lord promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. Fast forward again to the time of the Exodus, and the Lord rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, gathers them around Mount Sinai to receive his law, and he calls his rescued people his treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." It's Exodus chapter 19. And then the Lord sustains and he preserves his chosen people all the way through Israel's turbulent national history, through the exile, through the return from exile until finally Jesus is born. All of those Old Testament promises around God's people are then fulfilled as Jesus suffers and dies and rises again and is ascended and his Holy Spirit comes down and now God's people extend beyond the borders of Israel to encompass people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in Acts chapter 1. God has always been saving a people for himself. Now, this is important for two reasons. First is this. It's, it's important because it reminds us that the Lord is, always has been, and always will be committed to his chosen people. When we get to the very end of the Bible, there's still a people of God gathered around his throne, praising him forever in heaven. The church today is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and purposes, and it'll itself be further fulfilled when Jesus comes again and we're taken to heaven to be with him forever. It's worth remembering because sometimes in history, as we know, we see the gospel powering ahead as communities and even nations turn to Jesus, but we see revivals, we see transformed lives, but at other times, God's people are on the back foot, they're under threats. They're persecuted. They're seen as the bad guys in the world. But it doesn't matter because of God's commitment to his people. He will save a people for himself. And so we can be confident that whether the church is on the front foot or the back foot, nothing will stop God's promises and purposes for his people that he's saving in Christ. In other words, the church will never be destroyed no matter how strong or weak it looks at any given moment in history. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Why? It's because the Lord is, has always been, and will always be committed to his people. So that's the first reason. The second reason this is important, because it shows us that our faith in Christ is actually meant to be lived out actively, in community with other believers. God's plan for us is that we are part of a people. We're not just people. As Bruce Milne once wrote, biblical religion is inescapably corporate. There are no solo Christians. We're all in this together. We're not saved into a personal relationship with God on our own. We're saved, into, we're saved to be part of his people. And we'll talk a bit more about this when we get to Ephesians chapter 4 in a moment. So that's the first thing to say. God has always been saving a people for himself. Brings us to the second important point, though, that God sees a church we can't see. When we look at the church today, our vision is very limited. Of course, we're not God. We can't see things that God sees. Of course, we can see our own local church family here at Grace. We see many other churches that we might visit or are aware of. If you come along to the conference on uh, Saturday the 4th, and I really encourage you to do that, you'll see a bigger church than just our own church here on a Sunday as other churches from across the Sunshine Coast gather together under God's word. 
We might see different church networks and denominations and movements. Thanks to modern communication technology, we can even be aware of churches in other countries. But what we can see of the church still remains limited. The Lord doesn't share these limitations. When he looks at his church, he sees his people from across history. He sees the earliest Old Testament believers who trusted in the seed of a future coming Messiah, that barest of promises. He sees the New Testament believers who faithfully lived out their saved identity in Christ. He sees Christians across all ages, including ourselves, and even those who will yet come to faith in Christ in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. He sees his church across all of history when he looks at his church. And because he's Lord of everything, right now he sees a church which even includes those who are alive now in Christ and those who have now died in Christ who will one day all be gathered around Christ's throne in heaven forever. God sees a much bigger church than we see. He sees a worldwide church unhindered by borders. He sees both the church of Jesus living freely in places like Australia and the underground church meeting secretly with just a few believers. And he sees them all as one church. And really, we should too. What we're talking about right now is something... Christians down the centuries have called the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church being the one that we can see clearly, the visible church being the one only the Lord sees clearly. And this has some rather more sobering implications. Because the church that we see and the church that God sees don't actually line up perfectly. The Bible shows us countless examples of those who looked every bit to be part of God's people, but in reality were anything but. You just think of all the circumcised Israelites who received the sign of the covenant, who were rescued from slavery in Egypt, who saw the plagues, who themselves were at Mount Sinai and heard God's voice, but still refused to respond by faith to God's promises, and they died in the desert. In the New Testament, Jesus makes a devastating declaration in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that baptized, lifelong churchgoers who can articulate the gospel and who know their Bibles, even church leaders who teach and guide in the name of Jesus, even those who are involved in spectacular ministries for the sake of Christ, yet to Jesus they are strangers who have no place in his kingdom because they've not truly surrendered to the Lord Jesus, which is the will of the Father. Another way to say this is that not everyone who's part of the visible church, the church that we see, is also part of the invisible church, the one that God only sees. And it's because we're not God, we can't truly see what's going on in people's hearts. But it's a warning to us not to take our salvation in Christ, our own or others, for granted just based on a relationship to a church. It's not what it's about. A certificate of membership or baptism does not count when we get to heaven. For each of us, it's our relationship with the Lord Jesus that matters, which is then expressed in our fellowship with one another. Just because we go to church or even serve in church doesn't mean we're home and dry. As someone once said, uh, sleeping in a garage doesn't make you a car, and so just going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Of course, it's not meant to make us suspicious of each other's salvation or judgmental. Rather, as we see in a moment in Ephesians 4, and I promise we'll get there soon, church is the place where we encourage one another to trust Jesus and to go on trusting Jesus, as Peter says, to confirm your calling and election in 2 Peter 1 verse 10. There's a flip side to this as well, and the flip side I think is very encouraging. Paul reminds the young church leader Timothy in his final letter The Lord knows those who are his. 
That's 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his. And you know, this is true. No matter what denomination or local church a Christian is part of, it doesn't confuse God to see his people in different churches or in different denominations. He knows who belongs to him. This helps us not to be tribal or arrogant about a particular church or a particular network or to believe that we've somehow got to find the perfect church before we're saved. The Lord knows those who are his, whether they're part of a, a church that's got a strong preaching ministry or not, whether they're part of a church with a great music ministry or not, whether they baptize believers' children or not. The Lord knows those who are his. And so, yes, there are members of Christ's church among Baptists and Pentecostals and Anglicans and Methodists and brethren and non-denominational churches. There are members of Christ's church in the Roman Catholic Church, praise God. There are even saved Christians in Presbyterian churches. Of course, it doesn't mean we can't see any of the true church, just that the exact boundaries are only visible to God. The invisible church is visible wherever the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and faithfully responded to. And, church, and where church leaders are called using their eyes and ears under God's direction to either affirm or deny the claims of those who belong to Christ. But God sees a church we cannot see, and we do well to remember that. Now, I know that's a very extended introduction to this morning's passage, but I hope it's helpful. I hope we've drawn some basic boundaries about what the Bible says about church and particularly what God has always been and will always be committed to, the church that he only sees, this wonderful, glorious people that he is saving for himself, which we'll see finally when we get to heaven to be with him. All right, I'm going to keep my promise and get into Ephesians chapter 4. This is our second heading, Walking Worthy as One, from verse 1 to 6. What we're going to do now is take off our, our wide-angle lens... We're going to put on our macro lens and we're going to zoom in from the universal and invisible church to a visible local church in a particular time and place in the Asian city of Ephesus in the first century AD. Paul's writing from jail to a church that he helped to establish in Ephesus. And he's writing to encourage a church that's made up of Jewish background Christians and non-Jewish background Christians to encourage them to keep seeing their unity in Christ across cultural and ethnic barriers as evidence of the power of the gospel. He's taken the first three chapters to explain the biblical basis for how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings diverse and different people together into a new relationship with God and with each other that nothing in the world can do. And then the last three chapters, from chapter 4 to 6, he uses these to encourage the Ephesian Christians to live out the gospel together as a witness both to the world around them and even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 10. A witness to them of the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. He's really just calling us to a very high view of church. And so that's why Paul begins his second half of his letter with the words in verse 1. You can see them there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, if you've been called into a new relationship with the Lord Jesus and with his people, then live like it. It's a gospel that Paul has remained committed to, despite tremendous personal cost. It's a gospel he's willing to go to jail for. He says it's worth it. So live worthy, walk worthy of your calling. Or what does that gospel-shaped life look like? What does that walking worthy look like? It's there in verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See, gospel-shaped unity established by the Spirit of God as he lives within individual believers in relationship with one another must be a priority of the utmost importance for a local church family. 
There may be times, sadly, that unity has to be put aside for the sake of the gospel, but as long as the gospel is not at stake or under threat, unity comes first. And so we're called then to relate to one another in ways that reflect Jesus Christ himself and the way that he has related to each of us. With humility, thinking of ourselves less and others more, showing our fellow believers honor, even at our own expense. Gentleness, being strong, but having our strength entirely under control. Modern language maybe being a safe place for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Patience, letting God set the pace in our relationships with one another. And more crucially, letting God set the pace in each other's growth in Christ. Some people will just take longer to grasp the things that seem so obvious to us. It might take longer to grow to maturity in Christ than we might expect. So we're called to patience, and thank God that he's patient with us. Bearing with one another, not letting minor irritations and disagreements change the way we regard another person that Jesus died for. Love. In many ways, this this sums up the previous four qualities. We'll talk more about love as we go through, but biblical love is about wanting the very best for the other, even at cost to myself. This is the love Jesus exemplifies at the cross. And of course, peace. Without tension in our relationships, because our relationships are built entirely on that secure footing of what God has done for us in Christ. And so we have nothing to fear and nothing to lose. I think it's worth noticing that Paul first shows how our unity is not expressed in theological statements or organizational structures or shared interests, but in eager heart attitudes towards one another, which are the product of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, reflecting God's heart towards us in Christ. That's the character of his church. As John Stott once wrote, we may be quite sure that no unity is pleasing to God which is not the child of charity. Now, if you just scan over the next six verses, one word in particular should jump out at you, and that's the word one. Sorry, the next three verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One is mentioned seven times there. Something's repeated in the Bible. It's good good to believe that it's, it's fairly important. The writer wants us to notice it. Paul might as well have said there is one gospel, so reflect the oneness of the gospel together. And so this point about the uniqueness of the gospel warns us against any kind of tribalism or exclusivity at any level. As we said earlier, the church God sees and is committed to is bigger than any one church or church network or denomination precisely because there's only one body of which we're all a part if we have faith in Christ. And so we're called to a gospel-shaped oneness as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is expressed in transformed attitudes and behavior towards one another, thanks to the Holy Spirit who lives within all of us. So there's this oneness that we have in Christ, which we're called to walk worthy of. But there is something in the church that is not all the same and in which we don't see a a oneness particularly, we see instead a purposeful diversity. And that's in the variety of gifts the Lord has given his church, both to guard and to grow us. And this brings us to our third point for this morning. Gifts to guard and grow us. So in verse 7, Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul moves on here to explain what he means by quoting from Psalm 68, giving us a picture of Jesus' ultimate victory in terms familiar to the ancient world. So what would have happened is when a victorious ruler returned from battle, 
he would have led a, a, a massive procession, a parade, a victory parade, with the prisoners of war being pulled along behind, and he would publicly receive tributes from the conquered powers. And also, as a show of greatness, he would liberally shower his people with gifts. Look how great I am. I'm just going to give of my spoils, give it away. I've got more than I need because my victory was so complete. And Paul actually says this is what Jesus has done for his church following his victory over sin and death at the cross. Now, verse 9 and 10 are a little confusing about Jesus ascending and descending. It's not actually about Jesus going up and going down. The point is there at the end of verse 10, simply that he might fill all things. It's the point of what Paul's saying. In other words, because of Jesus' total humiliation, coming down to earth and suffering and dying on a cross, and his total exaltation, similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Because of that, he has universal authority and power to give his church the very best gifts because his victory is that complete. And so we ought to value those gifts. Also, these aren't simply what we might call gifts of the spirit or spiritual gifts. These are actually Jesus' gifts mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian receives different gifts, but Christ himself is their source. Now, in verse 11, Paul moves from the source of the gifts to the purpose of these gifts. And we'll go there first. In verse 13 to 15, we see why he has given these gifts. And I think it's helpful to go there before we look at the gifts themselves. So the purpose of the gifts, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, that is the purpose of the gifts that Christ has given his church. Gifts to guard us and grow us until we reach maturity together in Christ. They guard us against being taken advantage of by ideas and people who are opposed to the gospel of Christ, protect us from losing our sure footing on Jesus. And these gifts also grow us in our knowledge of the Son of God, so that we may all be saturated by the heart and the mind and the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are these gifts and how do we use them? Well, I'm glad you asked. The New Testament never gives us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. We find them in a few different places. There's a few lists. They don't always match up. It's a very broad category. And the things that we see here in Ephesians 4 might not be the things we usually consider to be these kind of gifts. Paul doesn't mention things like healing or gifts of generosity or uh, ability to prophesy, those sorts of things. Instead, we get a list in verse 11 that sounds more like a list of church leadership roles. So look at verse four, 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11 with me. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, of course, we don't have apostles and prophets in the biblical sense anymore. Rather, their ministry to us continues in their words in the Bible. And I know chronologically the prophets come before the apostles, but because of how Jesus, uh, the story of the Bible is all about him, it's fulfilled in Christ, the ministry of the apostles actually helps us to understand the ministry of the prophets, which is why he mentions apostles and then prophets. But those who Christ gives his church as evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are generous and valuable gifts. There's a lot of overlap here between the different gifts, different offices, we might say, but here's a basic description of each one. Evangelists are those literally who speak the gospel, They're the ones who do pioneering gospel ministry. You might think of missionaries or church planters or even the AFES guys. Shepherds are those who care for the spiritual health of the church. 
through guarding and feeding and sometimes bringing back from wandering, even through discipline. In a church like ours, uh, the shepherds would be the elders. And teachers, there are those who are, whose primary responsibility is to teach the word. Pastors and elders may fall into this category and often will, but so do small group leaders and Sunday school teachers, those who are appointed to teach the word. Now, of course, some church leaders do believe they are God's gift to the church, but this makes a mockery of the humility that we've all already been called to in the gospel, doesn't it? Instead, these leaders are given to the church by Christ himself to serve the church, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Just by the way, when it says saints there, Paul's talking about you and me, not about some dead guy that some people pray to. They're the holy ones. They're the ones who've been set apart for Jesus. We're all saints. So feel free after the service today at morning tea to greet one another as St. Mark and St. Luke and St. Pat. This is a reminder that we're set apart for Jesus. But isn't it interesting? Scripture doesn't call the leaders of a church to do the work of ministry. Rather, their work is to equip the whole church to do ministry together, to know the gospel, to speak it lovingly and truthfully into each other's lives so that we may together be guarded and grown in Christ. Paul's talking about every member ministry. There's an important application here. As a Christian, for the sake of your safety and your growth in Christ, you need to be part of a local church in submission to biblical leadership that's accountable to Jesus and recognized by his church, whose goal it is to equip the church for a shared gospel ministry, for its ultimate shared maturity in Christ. It's one reason why we practice formal church membership here at Grace. The Bible says you can't do church on your own terms because it's dangerous. Now, the French reformer John Calvin makes the point with characteristic bluntness. He said, yet such are the fanatics on the one hand who pretend to be favored with secret revelations of the spirit and proud men on the other who imagine that to them the private reading of the scriptures is enough and that they have no need of the ordinary ministry of the church. That ordinary ministry is nothing less than ordinary Christians committed to one another in a local church, equipped and encouraged by the ministry of their leaders. So that, in verse 15, they may go on speaking the truth in love to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I do think verse 15 is one of the most misunderstood and perhaps misused verses in the New Testament. It's probably worth saying something about what the Bible means there. Speaking the truth in love. The truth, of course, is not just anything that I feel particularly strongly about. And it's not automatically spoken in love because I'm verbalizing what I consider to be the truth. It's not speaking the truth in love if I turn around to someone in church as we're singing and say, I say this to you because I love you. When you sing, it sounds like a cat being dragged backwards through a combine harvester. That's not loving, and frankly, who cares? They're praising Jesus with the voice he gave them. First of all, the truth in view here is nothing less than the gospel itself. We've got to let the context guide us. It's not just my personal convictions. If we just glance at all the, the statements that Paul has made, all the, the, the declarations he's made in, this, in the first verses of this chapter, you'll see that they're all about Jesus. That's his goal. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And this truth is set against all the anti-gospel ideas and anti-gospel people in verse 14. The truth is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came, died our death, and rose again to give us new life as forgiven children of the God Most High. 
Now, this might require some hard words to be spoken sometimes. Sometimes the truth of the gospel demands that we bring to our brothers or sisters' attention something that we, we see in their lives which doesn't seem to line up with their claim to follow Jesus. But secondly, that's where speaking the gospel truths in love is so important. And notice the logic of the statement here. Truth and love aren't set up as, as equal opposites. Love is actually the determinative factor in how we speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love. Truth isn't automatically love, it's in love, it's shaped by love. And as we said earlier, Christian love is about wanting and working for the very best for one another in Christ. So in that way, verse 15 and 16 are really parallels. Growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, it's actually the same thing as the body growing so that it builds itself up in love. So when we feel the need to speak the truth of the gospel to one another, whether to encourage, whether to question, or whether even to warn, we must ask ourselves whether we're doing it to puff ourselves up, whether it comes from our own personal fears, or whether we're doing it because we genuinely want our brother or our sister in Christ to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13. This is a responsibility all of us have for one another. Now, we've talked at length about the church from the Bible this morning. Might be things that we haven't touched on. I'd love you to join us for the Q&A a bit later this morning, which we might push on to 10.15, noticing the time. Um, but we'll talk more about church in the Q&A, about any questions you might have. But I've avoided the obvious statements this morning that the church is not a building, the church is not an organization. I hope you can already see why. The church is a gift from God himself through the Lord Jesus. It's a community he's been building since the very beginning and which he will continue to build into eternity. All members of Christ's church are called to reflect the character of Jesus as the basis for our oneness. The diversity that exists in our various gifts is given by Jesus himself so that each of us, under the equipping ministry of church leaders, may speak gospel truth to one another in real Christian love so that we can all grow up together in Christ and be kept safe from sin and error in him. I hope you've been able to see this morning that the church is a precious gift from God and the only place for a Christian to be. It's to our eternal advantage for each of us to take our place in Christ's church, receiving the loving gospel ministry of our brothers and sisters towards us, and being willing to serve them with the same as we become like Jesus together, showing the world the gospel through our oneness. A oneness which is confusing to them because they just can't imagine that people like us should love each other so much. And we do that until Jesus comes again. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gift of the church. Lord, help us to love and value your church. Help us to see it as that great gift from you. Help us to take our place in your church and to seek to show the character of Christ to one another. And in so doing, we show our oneness and the glory of the gospel to the world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the church. Amen. Welcome, everyone. Um, we're going to get underway with another Q&A in just a moment. Um, so feel free to come find your seats down here. I'll just run us through again how everything works with the Q&A. So this week, we're looking at the topic of church. Um, so that's the topic we're focusing on. If you're not familiar with how this works, if you've got a question, stick up your hand. I'll bring the mic over to you. Just a reminder, this session is recorded. Um, so that's why we bring around the mic. But if you'd like to ask a question anonymously, we've got a little uh, website called Slido. So if you whip out your phone, type in slido.com or scan the QR code and then just punch in that code, you should be able to answer, I mean, ask questions anonymously online. Um, so we've got Clint and we've got Mark here. We're going to look at church. I might pray for us as we start our Q&A, and then we'll get underway with the questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that when you save us, you save us into community. 
We thank you for the church that we have here today, the visible church, and we thank you for the reminder of the gospel um, today and for the fact that we can speak the gospel to one another in love um, for the building up of your church. We pray today in our Q&A, yeah, we would build one another up as we continue to grow more and more into maturity in you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, we might kick it off with a question on the floor. If someone has a question, chuck your hand up. I'll come around to you. Um, So, I'm just wondering, what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church um, and how that also parallels to the husband being the head of the wife? That's a great question. Mark, do you want to grab that one? Or? <laughs> uh, Hudson's question was about how Christ is the head of the church and how that relates to husbands and wives. So that comes from Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that... So this is from Ephesians chapter 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So I think the way to answer that question is to say that the Bible talks about the church as a body. It's the body of Christ. And if body needs a head to kind of determine it, to give it identity, to give it life and shape and all those things. So that's what Christ does for his church. Um, Usually when you talk about Christ being the head of the church, we say that there's no person who is the head of the church in that sense. No person has authority over the church the way Jesus does. Um, and any, I guess, authority that is in the church, it derives its authority from Jesus, not from anywhere else. way it relates to marriage, I think, then, is looking at the character of Jesus' headship. So it's, it's definitely not what we see here, a kind of authoritarian, over-the-top, kind of I say and you do kind of headship. Uh, it's a headship which is built very much on the character of the gospel, where Christ is the one who serves the church by laying down his life for the church because he wants to give the church to God at the end of time as a perfect people purified for his own name, which is then why Paul uses that to actually explain how husbands and wives should relate to each other. So sure, the husband is the head of the wife in the sense that he's responsible, but the way he exercises that headship is through sacrificially serving so that his wife can have the best relationship with God that she possibly can. I guess, does that kind of help to answer the question? Yep, okay. (laughs) Do you want to add anything, Mark, or... I'm not sure. Um, The other thing that I think we ignore biblically is the special nature of the church. Um, We all acknowledge that as Christians, when you become a Christian, you are given the Holy Spirit, which indwells you. You think about that seriously. That is God. That is the creator God abiding somehow in you joining you with others, making you part, somehow making you part of God, of the structure of God. And that's going to be consummated in heaven where the Bible uses the analogy of the bride of Christ. So once you're in Christ... You don't get a choice. You are part of the body of Christ. You are in the church. You have the Holy Spirit. And there's another discussion there we can pursue perhaps some other time that I think the Protestant church doesn't emphasise the nature of the Trinity often enough. There is one God. Three persons but one God. So when you say you have the Holy Spirit, you have Christ in you. You are part of the body of Christ. 
I think saying that Christ is the head of the church is just a way of trying to explain that rather supernatural connection and relation to do with your membership. Bottom line I'm trying to, to, re, to make, I think, is in our thoughts, in our discussions, we've got to draw the distinction between the church and virtually every other institution in society. Uh, when it's different to joining a golf club. It's different to joining a bowling club. A, we don't get a choice. We're in it. And B, we are specially connected to a very living God. Here ends the sermon. Any other questions off the floor? Yep. Thanks. Uh, my question is, how did all the different denominations within the church start? Um, what does the Bible say about it? And is it causing more unity or division within the church? Uh, thanks, Lee. How, how long have you got? <laughs> Look, the different denominations, I think we always assume that they started because someone got upset with someone else and decided to go off on his own. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it was, you know, geographical or historical that led to some of those different, you know, church networks kind of growing up and becoming formalized and, you know. Um, it's easy to look at different denominations and go, oh, look at the church, they're just fragmented and disunified, and that's not what the Bible calls us to. So it is a little bit confusing when you look around and you see Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians and all sorts of other things. Um, I was reminded a couple of weeks ago at a conference that we had in Brisbane that denominations in some ways are actually a huge help to the gospel for two reasons. One is that it gives us a way to carry on with our gospel ministry while allowing us to a place to express secondary convictions that doesn't bring us into tension with each other. So, for example, you know, Presbyterians, we have a very particular conviction around church governance, which is not shared by our Baptist friends or our Anglican friends. So it allows us to go, right, we're going to govern our church this way, and we're not going to get in tension with those guys, so we can still work together. And that's maybe the other advantage of it, is it allows us then to work together as the body of Christ in different places. Um, so... The, again, I'll, I'll plug the conference on the 4th. That's a place where we're going to see that in, in action, uh, where we see different churches kind of coming together as the body of Christ, um, as different churches and different denominations. The other thing which is where God has actually, I think, blessed his church through the different denominations is that sometimes when some denominations have struggled, the Lord has used other church networks and denominations to come alongside them and encourage them and support them and raise them up and, and help them to stay true to the gospel. So... Yeah, it can look confusing from the outside that we all disagree. Um, I love my Baptist brothers and sisters and my Anglican brothers and sisters as much as I love anyone else. And it's actually a, it's a great thing that we can just do the gospel together. It's where the Lord has placed us. Um, you know, my own history, I, you know, grew up in a con congregational church, saved and trained in an Anglican church, and I'm in a Presbyterian church. It's a place to do gospel ministry. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. You want to add to that, Mark, or...? Nope. Great. Did that kind of help? Kind of, yeah. Great. Cool. Online is still pretty quiet, so happy to take more questions off the floor. Um, I just kind of missed a part in the sermon, uh, specifically when it says, like, the apost apostles. Sorry, one second. Yeah, apostles. And then you kind of explained what the like modern-day version of that might be. I just kind of missed that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That's just a question from the sermon. Um, th thanks. I didn't notice that you tuned out because you were doing a really good job with the slides. So that's, that's very impressive. <laughs> um, so that's, that's back in Chapter 4 where it talks about how Christ has given... Uh, verse, tw uh, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So those are, in some ways, officers of the church. Apostles, obviously, those who are sent out by Jesus. Uh, we don't have apostles in that sense anymore. Um, they were the first generation of, of gospel workers in many ways. Um, of course, their ministry is preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. So they continue to kind of serve us that way. Same with prophets. We don't have prophets in the same sense as they were in the Bible anymore, but their ministry continues through uh, what's written down in Scripture for us. 
So the recipients, I guess, of that ministry of the apostles and prophets are today um, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers in, in the local church. That's, uh, does that kind of fill in the gaps for you? Yeah, great. Do you want to add to that, Mark, or? Not sure if this helps because it also links back to the previous question about denominations. Uh, our understanding of apostles essentially is that they are the ones who knew Christ, who received teaching from him personally. And so you get Paul, for example, who wasn't one of the disciples but, but met Christ subsequently in a special way. Uh, and there are a couple of others, I think, in that early church who were called apostles as well. There are some denominations around who take a slightly different view. And I haven't quite got my brain around the totality of it, but um, essentially church leaders with special powers, I think, are called apostles. There's actually a German denomination that's apostolic church. Yeah, which gives their church leaders, leaders, plural, I think, the status of the Pope, effectively. Um, so there is a matter of debate, but I, I think the biblical view is they're the ones, ones who knew Christ. So we consider basically the people who met Jesus' apostles and Paul an apostle because Jesus appeared to him? Yeah, so we, we Paul calls himself, um, I forget where, but he calls himself the least of the apostles. Um, you've obviously got Matthias who was elected to replace Judas, so he became an apostle. And it's interesting, the Bible also calls James the brother of Jesus an apostle as well. But the common factor is that they're all um, they all met, like Mark was saying, all met and knew Jesus and were commissioned essentially by him personally to go out and minister. There's another part of this as well which is interesting is that um, churches have always believed in what's called apostolic succession in the way the church is preserved through history. Now, what the Roman Catholic Church has always done is they talk about apostolic succession through the Apostle Peter, and that's where the whole doctrine of the Pope and stuff comes from. We say, no, that's, that's not actually what the Bible's on about, and a verse like this shows us apostolic succession actually comes through the Bible, not through a person. Um, so our apostolic succession is, is simply staying true to the Old and New Testaments. Um, yeah, good question. Cool. Uh, for the sake of time, maybe a couple more questions off the floor. Online's still pretty quiet. Back. Um, hello. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to um, raise a question about um, gifts of the Spirit. Um, and uh, particularly uh, speaking in tongues and how that's we've sort of touched on um, different denominations and so I just wanted to have uh, your opinion on the gift of speaking in tongues and um, uh, the charismatic movement and uh, what sort of things we can say to fellow Christians who are in the charismatic movement about um, our stance on speaking in tongues. <laughs> I think Clint's got to be a little careful here because we don't know who will be watching YouTube later. Uh, um, it's a very good question. It's a, it is true that it's one of the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in the New Testament and used. Uh, Paul advises that it is used wherever there's someone who can translate present. Uh, and like all those gifts, they were given for a purpose. And Paul says it was for you to build yourself up and there are other and better gifts for the church and as our sermon said this morning really what we're on about is building each other up as one i also have had 
charismatic friends over the years, I don't understand where the preeminence of tongues came into their thinking. It must be in their history somewhere. But tongues and healing, I suppose they see them as very visible signs that they can point to as evidence of the Holy Spirit. I think some of the others uh, are probably more profitable for the teaching as a of the for the building up of the church as a whole. And um, isn't it, you don't hear so much people earnestly desiring the gift of generosity um, as much as you do tongues, which actually is an interesting thing to think through for a little bit. Um, I think I might stop there for now. Has that given you time to think? Yeah, yeah. I agree with everything you said, Mark, so thanks, thanks very much. Brad, it is a great question, and it's one that becomes very confusing to us, I think. Um, there are those who believe the Bible teaches that all those things stopped at the end of the New Testament. Um, that's a view I respect. I don't share it myself. I think that... How can I put this? that the, the Bible certainly speaks of gifts of being able to speak in unlearned languages or, or words or speech of some description for the building up of the church. And that second part is really important. Um, it doesn't give us a clear indication in my mind of when it stops, but my question is always, is what we see today and what's being called tongues exactly the same thing as what's going on in, in Scripture, which I, I, I just don't know if we can know that. Um, but the, the Bible does give us some guidelines, I guess, around how it must be used. And it is really limited to three chapters in 1 Corinthians. We, we rarely actually hear about it in the New Testament at all, um, which probably gives us an indication of how much weight we need to put on it as an experience or a, or a gift, perhaps. Um, so I would certainly be looking at 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about... Um, it talks about tongues as being something that's private between me and God. Uh, but Paul does say, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So there's a limitation placed on the gift there as well. So he says, what am I to do? Well, I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. So don't just think that the tongues is going to be, you know, give me like an inside track to God in that way. Um, he says as well, further down, when he talk about the gift of tongues towards other believers. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God, Paul says, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words of my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And he goes on to say a bit further down, um, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. I know there's, there's questions about that. But he says in 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Um, and I think we've got to take that seriously, going, you know, how much do we pursue this? Do we pursue this to the point where the world looks at us and just thinks we're crazy? Um, but it says, if all prophesy, and I take that to mean faithfully declaring the words of God, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Which is where then Paul goes on to talk about things must be done decently and in order, there's a way to do it, which is always based on God's glory, the building up of the church, and the declaration of the gospel. And I think if those things aren't in place, we've got to be really hesitant of what the gift is and what it's doing. Um, does that kind of help... Answer the. I, I know you do, yeah. Mm, yeah, no, it's it's a good question and something I think which is treated with caution and you know we keep keep the gospel in view always in intelligibly. Yeah, thanks. A few questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, tongues is the gift of the. Holy Spirit, uh, and we all acknowledge that. Paul also says, uh, they were speaking the uh, language of angels and have not love. I'm a noisy gong and a clanging bell. And his emphasis is on love, which is the new commandment, the new covenant Jesus gave us 
before he ascended into heaven. He said, a new commandment or a new covenant I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So uh, the emphasis is more on love than on on one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. Um, we might close with these two guys back here. We'll get your questions. Thanks, Toby. Um, you're talking about the speaking in tongues. That, that's confusing. I understand there's a lot of confusion about if there is speaking in tongues in church, is it an other language like Egyptian or not? Um, that so that other people can hear the gospel. I've heard that said in their own native language as opposed to sounds that may not be a language. Um, so premising that, should we, if there is speaking in tongues as our church leaders, do you believe that should still happen? Is that still a thing? And if, that's the first question, and if so, how should it look in our church if that's the case? You did say church leaders, so... Oh, thanks, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's, it's a good question. I, there's a lot of I don't knows there. Um, I mean, I know some people do believe, they're very convicted that it is a language, an intelligible language. Uh, to others, it's like, I think Graham was saying, a language of angels that is not related to... I don't know the answer to that. Um, I've never seen it done, I think, biblically, in the same sense as what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Um, yeah, but I would think that... If it did happen, we would probably stop things and ask if anyone can interpret. And if they can't, we'll ask them to sit down and we'll have a chat afterwards. That's probably the best I could do. Um, do you want to? Yeah. Um, taking a slightly different view on it, in Melbourne, where I lived for a number of years, there was a church down the road called the Church of All Nations. It was, I think, uh, a uniting church. But... Because it was a multicultural congregation, they presented all the service and the sermon in something like five or six different languages. They had a headset be, uh, along the pews that you'd put on and the minister would preach in English and you'd dial up the language that you wanted. Um, I know that's taken us away from the role that you're talking about with the Holy Spirit. But it's an interesting way in the modern world where we can deal with different languages in a church and a way that we could look at it. Uh, there's an awful lot of organisation required to do that, of course. You've got to pre-record a lot of stuff. But it is feasible. Just a comment. Uh, we might finish with Matt's question at the back. Uh, yeah, look, uh, just a bit of an extension on the tongues conversation. So it also mentions prophets, and I guess I just wanted to... Uh, is there a distinction here that the way that he, he uses the term, I guess, prophets versus how it's spoken about in 1 Corinthians? Um, I, I know there's quite a few people today that, that would kind of classify themselves in that sort of prophet and, you know, speaking thus says the Lord on God's behalf. Um, is there a distinction between that and 1 Corinthians? Good question. Thank you. Um, and it's one I think we've got to handle very carefully because, again, it gets back to the denominations thing. I think it's an area that can go very badly wrong. And I've seen congregations where they talk about having a word of prophecy uh, where someone has a, a thought and, and pushes it at someone, here is the word for you today sort of thing. Um, it gets back to what Clint was saying in the, ha in the sermon about doing everything in love to build each other up and it's very easy to be doing stuff like that to build yourself up and to present a gospel. Uh, the other thing is the scope of prophecy and I think that's what Clint will talk about in a, in a second or so. It's much more than just foretelling the future. Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's a great segue. <laughs> um, yeah, Matt, great question. I think 
something that's always helped me is to distinguish between what is foretelling God's word and what is forthtelling God's word. So I certainly believe that in the Bible, the ministry of foretelling God's word, the way we see it in the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, has stopped um, because we've we've got you know the the Bible, God's word, completed for us. So we don't need to know what's happening in the future in that sense. But there's still a prophetic sense of foretelling God's word. Thus says the Lord, you know, you know pick a verse from the Bible really and, and declare it. And I think that ministry of prophecy still exists today in that sense anyway. It's interesting, the Puritans, who we might think as, you know, the most staunch conservative traditionalists, they used to have prophecy groups, which was actually ministers getting together and preaching their sermons to each other, and then they would critique each other's sermons. So they certainly saw the proclamation of the word in, in like a sermon as, as prophecy in that way. Um, but it's not, you know, telling the future or saying, you know, next week God's going to give you a new car. It's, you know, this is what God's word says and being faithful to that. So, yeah, prophecy today, I think it, it does matter for the church. And some people are especially gifted in that, uh, in forth-telling God's word. Yeah, does that kind of cover the various bases? Great. Um, just as we close on the topic of church, um, thought it might be helpful to plug home groups. Um, this Q&A is a great space where we can wrestle with ideas and concepts in kind of a forum space. And home groups really do that on a smaller scale with a bunch of believers wrestling through um, life and ideas and concepts and bringing God's Word to bear in our lives together. Um, so just wanted to plug that come chat to Clint or Rob or Mark or another one of the elders if you're interested in plugging into a home group. That would be, um, yeah, a really good way to continue on this unity that we have as a body of believers. Um, so just worth plugging there. I might pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time again today to um, consider, to reflect upon your church, um, the gift that you have given to us in the gospel. Um, that we have become a family of believers, Lord. We ask that you would help us to, um, in the power of your Spirit, strive to build up one another, um, to speak the gospel in love. And we pray that that would be a compelling witness to the world around us, that they would see our unity um, and our otherness. And because of that, many more people would come to know you. We pray all this for our good, um, for the good of your church, and for your glory. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.